You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 86 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. And uh, it is not a solo show this month. For the first time in a while, I have myself a guest. And not hello. just hello guest. Now, <laughs> very observant listeners will recognize the voice because you're a repeat guest, for which I'm eternally grateful. So joining me again is um, teacher of photography, photographer, and all around nice guy, Jeff Curto is back. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Hello. I'm sorry. I stepped in early there Ooh, by saying hello. No, no. <laughs> there are no rules, right? We, we are here to have a fun conversation about photography. And I've invited you to join my sort of series within a series where I invite a photographer I respect to evangelize a photographer they respect. So who have first you of all, chosen? First of all, thanks for having me again. I must not have uh, stepped in it too badly last time uh, I that I was on your show. Positive feedback from the previous two times <laughs> so, you've been on, actually. Uh, so uh, I appreciate you asking me back, and uh, I'm honored to be one of those photographers you respect to talk about a photographer I respect. So uh, thanks very much for that. Uh, I guess vote of confidence. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, you asked me, this is like such an interesting question that you asked, you know, I, I, Jeff, I'd like you to come on my show and I'd like you to, to evangelize a photographer that, that you find interesting and that you have a great deal of respect for. And man, there are so many, you know, I, I, I taught the history of photography, uh, two to three times a year for 30 years. And so I had this you know, big familiarity with photographers throughout history. And it was quite a complex question to answer. I like made myself a list and then I edited that list down of historical photographers and, and contemporary photographers. And uh, in the end, I, I settled on uh, a woman named Olivia Parker. Uh, yeah. Olivia Parker is... Just, just is uh, on, can I just ask you a question out, out of pure curiosity? Was Certainly. Stieglitz on the shortlist? Because I was convinced you'd pick someone like Stieglitz. No, he wasn't. Huh. So I'm just completely He wrong. wasn't. No, so so I, I'll I'll briefly say I, I, I love Stieglitz as a photographer, uh, though I think his in in my opinion, this is like one of those, you know, I'm sure that somebody will send some nasty email. I don't think he was as good a photographer as he was an empresario of photography. His real skill was bringing photography kicking and screaming into the 20th century and uh, getting people to understand that, that photography had the capability of being an art form on a par with painting and, and printmaking and sculpture and drawing and, uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I love Stieglitz, but no, he was not on the short list. Uh, Carlton Watkins was on the short list, uh, uh, and, and, uh, Eugene Otje was on the short list. 
Um, but uh, you know, no, Stieglitz, Stieglitz wasn't there. That's funny. That's funny. I, 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 I can see why you would think that. And I, I do. Just, I know, do. When, when I know, listen to your course, but... you always speak. There's something in your voice when you're speaking about Stieglitz that shows you respect him greatly. But your explanation that it's because of he, how he enabled photography rather than his own photography is interesting. Yeah, and I, 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 I think you have to speak about Stieglitz reverently. It's sort of. You know, you, you, it's, uh, you know, it's like going to church. You can't, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> so, okay. So, so uh, Stieglitz didn't make the list, but Olivia Parker, Olivia won, Parker. won the list. She, yeah, she won the list. Um, and so let me, let me just tell you a little bit about this, this woman who is, uh, still working as a photographer and still, uh, exhibiting and, fairly recently published a sort of uh, life retrospective uh, book about her work. But, um, and she is currently, I think, uh, 79 years old, just to give a, a perspective about when she started working. But, but she followed the path that uh, I think an awful lot of photographers uh, have followed in terms of coming into the medium and, uh, and, and, and ex, I was going to say exploiting, but using the medium to her advantage. So, uh, her background was in art history. She was, she was a dedicated art historian. That was her degree. Uh, she was also interested in painting and drawing. And in the 1970s began, uh, photographing and, it, it what what I find really interesting about this person is that, you know, probably about the 1970s was when I, because uh, I'm I'm 61 uh, years old, and it was about when I started to get you know serious about photography, and uh, her work was work that I was introduced to by some teacher along the way uh, as being interesting and. Uh, she was also, um, you know, in that in that group of photographers in the 1970s who were publishing books, monograph books. And back in the, you know, I, I, I just already articulated, I'm 61, so I'm not that old, but I'll start to sound like like a crotchety old man. And back before the internet, <laughs> before we had the internet to to look at photographers' work. The primary way that we looked at work was through books, uh, monograph books uh, of of a single photo photographer's output. And I was fortunate to go to a, a, a university that had a not an extensive, but a pretty healthy collection of photography monographs. And a couple of them uh, were Olivia Parker books. One was called Signs of Life, uh, and the other one was called Weighing the planets and signs of life was uh, a book of black and white photographs that were uh, that appeared to be at least the way they were presented in the book that appeared to be contact prints from four by five and five by seven inch negatives from a view camera and I found that to be really interesting too because it had happened to be at about the same time that I was discovering the large format camera and exploring that as a mechanism for making work. 
And uh, what was really interesting about these pictures was that the way they had been produced in this Signs of Life book is they'd been produced in really beautiful duotone uh, reproductions. Okay, these so, really so gorgeous. Back yeah. up a second there. So duotone. So duotone, monochrome is one color, so be it a sepia or a black and white. So duotone is right. two colors? It's two colors. So it would be a black ink and then overlaid with a brown ink so that the the image would, the, the piece of paper would go through the printing press twice. So instead of just a black and white image in the book, you got these images that, and and I sent you earlier a link, and I'm, I'm sure... Yeah, I was going to say to the listeners, so oliviaparker.com is the wonderfully simple URL if you'd like to <laughs> browse uh, some of Olivia's work while you hear us talking about it. So I have been browsing away as you've been talking, and... I have to say, I really am fascinated by her work. So it's not all these, there's a lot of color stuff. But So the, the first book that caught your eye was this duotone book from 1978. Yep, exactly. And so Signs of Life was this, was this book that, and, and what, we, what we, the students of photography at the time, began to, to recognize was that she was doing something, uh, not only in terms of subject matter, this, and, and I'll get to the subject matter here in a second, but technologically, she was doing something in the darkroom that we discovered was called uh, split toning. Split toning, which I think is really funny because it's there as a slider in Lightroom now, right? Well, yeah. it's been replaced just re- replaced just recently by color grading or something like that. But split toning. Uh, which was literally a process of using a chemical toner, uh, selenium toner, and using it at a dilution such that if you put the print into the toner for a brief period of time, some of the tones of the photograph, most likely the dark ones, would take on this sort of brownish, sepia, beautiful tone, and the lighter tones would not. And if you remove the print from the toner really quickly and then, uh, you know, tossed it into a water bath, it would stop this this toning of the print. And so if you're on Olivia Parker's site looking at these signs of life images, you'll see that they have this wonderful tonal quality, which for those of us who were working in the black and white darkroom at the time, uh, you know, it it was it was magical, right? Like this idea that you could get a kind of colorized image in the black and white darkroom was something that we'd never seen before. And we discovered through, you know, I don't really remember how that if you used the Agfa uh, company's Portriga rapid paper um, and selenium toner that you could get these tones in this print. And so, you know, we would be burning burning through boxes of that paper and gallons of that toner, which was not cheap, uh, you know, week by week, trying to replicate what we were seeing because it was something that was really unusual. Um, and, uh, and then like, so, so that was in and of itself pretty interesting. And then the next body of work that I became familiar with was this second body of work called weighing the planets. Um, and that expanded on this idea of the of the first body of work of signs of life 
and um, and and it it began to use a lot of like. Well, I, I should probably point out to the to the listeners that all of these photographs are what we might call still life images. Right, um, they're they're still and, life plus. Plus, yeah. <laughs> if, if that makes yeah, that's sense. That's why. So, so I'm looking at the gallery here. So there, there's no gallery for the first book you mentioned, but there is a gallery at oliviaparker.com for uh, weighing the planets. And sign, no, there's one. There's one for signs of life. It's right there? under the first oh, first so entry. So there is. I'll see it scrolled there out of my view. Um, and uh, so so that was was the sort of like astonishing thing, right? Uh, signs of life. And then weighing the planets was like, well, wait a second, where are these pictures coming from? Because it took this idea of still life imagery that, you know, that, you know, of course I was in, in art school at the time. I'd been looking at the still life paintings from the Baroque era and so forth and so on. And it took this idea of still life and stood it on its head. And what we sort of began to examine was the idea that she was playing with shadow. She was playing with cast shadow with the idea that that light changed over time. Uh, we would find essays that she wrote where she described the process of setting up this still life image in a studio environment and then watching as the sunlight changed throughout the day and changed the relationship of one object to the other um, and gathering the objects that she gathered that that had some poetic significance to her. And that was the next part about it was that it wasn't just the subject matter that was like, Oh, look at that. There's a picture of a flower or a picture of a, of a shell. She was beginning to tell a story within this small little still life environment. And what previously had been like a still life image that may have just sort of sat there as objects uh, wow, that's a beautiful photograph, beautiful light, whatever it is. Now you had characters of shadowy figures that were interacting with the shells and with the, uh, you know, with these, you know, small little pieces of bone and leaf and so forth and so on, uh, and mirrors and prisms. And really this whole idea of exploring and playing around with light. And yeah, it was, so, it was just amazing stuff. What strikes me looking at these images. So these are, unless I'm mistaken, these are back to traditional monochromes. This is not this duotone. This is, I think Correct. we're back to normal, normal monochrome. I but think you're right. Yes. Each of the direct subjects shall we say the traditional subjects the still life the the, the you know the, the the thing is inanimate and there is always in each of these pictures that i can see there's a second layer which is in some way fuzzy um like some sort of shadow or projection or something that feels ephemeral so something that is less concrete than the still life itself. And they tend to be living things like silhouettes of a horse, silhouettes of people. It's very strange to have these very still life, still life things. And then these fuzzy people projected, superimposed. It's a very... As if, 
as if they're wandering through the scene. Yes. Yeah. Right? And so, and so like, there's the, the whole part about setting up, you know, if any of the listeners have ever tried setting up a still life image, it's not as easy as it looks, right? It's not something you just say, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take a picture of this bowl of fruit, but I, you know, it, it takes a, a bit of manipulation and figuring out where things are going to go. So she's doing that, but then also introducing this other element of something that might be outside of the frame. And yet she gives us no escape from the frame itself. The only escape is in our head. Uh, and that's the part that always fascinated me about this. So I, I presume she must have had obviously lights and things and then silhouettes somehow suspended in the air between her light source and the background. I mean, this must be really quite elaborate to set up. Although a lot of them, believe it or not, are actually just things that she taped to the window. Okay, that right? would do it. That so would do it right. Yeah. Sunlight, sunlight coming through the window and, you know, thinking, thinking through where's the sun going to be today? Uh, where is it going to be at 3 o'clock? Where is it going to be at 5 o'clock? Um, and how is that going to change? And the idea of, uh, of, of being able to set this thing up and then watch it change over time so that she's not just setting it up, photographing it, then moving on to the next setup, but setting it up, leaving the camera there and then watching the light change the, uh, uh, the relationship of objects to objects. Now that I don't think always happened, but you can certainly see that in certain places she's putting the object in a place where the sunlight comes through it. Um, and it, I, I, I actually know a little bit more than I'm sharing at the moment, which I'm kind of like, you know, going to wait and reveal in a, in a, in a minute, but, but, uh, most of these early photographs, uh, were done predominantly with sunlight so they're not with studio lighting equipment most of them uh some of them yes some of them no um okay but, well, there uh, is some sort of physical obstruction being put in the window as you're saying which i yes. guess is much simpler than what i was thinking um and it also yeah. explains why there's no sign of like a tripod holding these silhouettes up or anything because you can stick things to glass so it's actually right exactly better you say it it's so obvious um, pretty clever, really, when you very. think about it. So, such a clever thing. So, so then the next thing that happened was that Olivia recognized that, you know, she had been a painter and studied art history, and was really interested in color photography, uh, because you know this, these black and white photographs, even with her split toning, the black and white photographs didn't quite capture the sense of being able to work with color. Mm. So, and, you know, the, the evolution of photography throughout my lifetime has been really interesting. You know, I, I started working in a dark room in the 1960s when I was in my single digits, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And all we had was black and white and it was just black and white for a long time. But, uh, and, and color was there, but it was difficult. You know, it was difficult. It required a lot of controls. It required a kind of a dark room that most people were not able to have at home. 
to make color prints and so forth until uh, the Polaroid material became available for large format cameras. And so this next uh, group that I'm, that I'm going to share um, that uh, uh, Olivia calls visual truths uh, and then followed up with miscellaneous curiosa. Oops, not miscellaneous. Instant anomalies. Instant, instant anomalies in visual truths. She accomplished first with four by five Polaroid material and then eventually with eight by 10 Polaroid material. So let's, you know, take a little step back in history and, you know, before digital photography, instant photography was accomplished by Polaroid cameras. We still have some semblance of that now, but uh, what these pictures were, when I talk about 4x5 and 8x10 Polaroids, it was a back that went into a 4x5 or an 8x10 camera into which a piece of Polaroid material was placed and exposed and then processed right there on the spot in a peel-apart kind of way. So a lot of people will think about Polaroids as this thing that shoots the camera, shoot, the camera shoots a picture out and it develops before your eyes, you know, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Uh, that the, Even that dates me, doesn't it? Damn. All right. So, uh, but, but these are, uh, it, it would come out of the, of the, of the uh, camera. And as it came out, it would be a pod of chemical reagent would be burst uh, by pulling it through a set of rollers and you'd wait. Uh, yeah. You'd wait like a, a requisite amount of time, like a minute and peel the, what was the negative sheet away from the receptor sheet and you'd have a color print hmm. and they could be, as you see in these instant anomalies images, quite beautiful and so, were a... but, but i just i have a, an immediate question because these these images remind me of the kind of work that i would assume was darkroom work um where you would be taking five or six photographs and compositing them together into a single image was this done in camera in camera wow so in so now imagine, you know, and, and this is why I think have to, in order to sort of understand Olivia, you have to go first to where this came from. You know, first you have to go like, well, to these black and white images. So you can kind of see, oh, well, this this came from, from this ex- exploration, this extensive exploration of still life imagery in black and white. And now you can begin to see that these objects are assembled. And yeah, they do look a little like, you know, things that have been uh, photoshopped together, but they are all single images done in camera. And what Olivia and a lot of other photographers who were using these peel-apart Polaroid images at the time discovered was that, you know, what what one of them uh, said, a, a woman named Marie Cassindis, said it was like having a dark room in the palm of her hand. So yeah. what what you could do was change the exposure time and that would change the white balance to some degree or another. You could change the developing time, the time that 
existed be- between the time you pulled the thing out of the rollers and the time that you peeled it apart. And that would change the intensity or lack thereof of certain colors within the emulsion. And then, of course, you could put filters over the front of the camera to change the color in more dramatic ways. Um, but, uh, you know, what what these photographers who were experimenting with this Polaroid material, and God love uh, Edwin Land, the inventor of Polaroid, he recognized that he had a commercial project or product that he wanted to get into the hands of lots of people. But one of the coolest ways to do that was to provide it to art photographers and commercial photographers and see what they did with it. And so Olivia and a lot of other photographers, you know, would get these uh, boxes of this material and instruction was play, see what you can make. And by golly, she made some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it's like particularly the second image in the gallery here at OliviaParker.com. I, I don't, I can't even begin to imagine how you do that in camera because to me, that's a Yulesman image in color, in amazing color. It's like, imagine if Yulesman decided color was cool. I'm just stunned <laughs> to think that this was done in camera. Pretty crazy, right? It's astonishing. So, so um, she started out with the small format 4x5 material and then uh, Polaroid actually made an 8x10 version of this material. So there's another interesting aspect of these images is that they are one of a kind, right? So oh, yes. just like just like other Polaroid materials, uh, you know, certainly she could sit there and make a small edition of four since it's still life material. But, uh, you, you know, each image is subtly different. And I've seen from time to time, I've seen, uh, you know, two or three of the same image but because some small variation occurred of change in development time or temperature, mm-hmm. like you could you could take the uh, the the image and develop it at a lower temperature by sticking it in the refrigerator for that minute and a half or whatever, and it would change the result of how the color worked. So so she was playing around with this stuff uh, as well. So uh, the the part that I, I guess I, I maybe should have started with was that I had uh, the tremendous opportunity uh, in uh, 1983 to attend an Ansel Adams workshop. And uh, it was a, a really an amazing period of time. Mm. And one of the instructors that Adams had had, had come along for the uh, period of time that that we were out in uh, Carmel, California, was Olivia Parker. So I met Olivia during this uh, period of time. And, you know, of course, I'd been just hanging on this work, right? And loving it and burning through the boxes of Portriga Rapid Paper and renting Polaroid backs and, and, you know, so forth and so on to try all of this stuff. And generally, generally, by the way, failing miserably at that. But, you know, trying to emulate this master who I had really admired. And, of course, you know, when you when you meet your heroes, what you tend to find out most of the time, especially, I think, in photography, is that they're just good folks. You know, so Olivia turns out to be a really, really lovely, wonderful woman uh, who 
since that 1983 meeting, I have kept in touch with and continued to uh, celebrate and correspond with. And uh, and uh, the the sort of really interesting thing about Olivia was that uh, something that uh, that I wasn't aware of until a few years after it happened, because she kind of kept it a little quiet, was that she had a terrible skiing accident in the uh, early to mid-1990s and shattered her leg and was, uh, you know, not able to walk for an extended period of time, wheelchair, and then eventually crutches and so forth. Now she's fine. But what it meant was that using the view camera was no longer something that she could easily do. Uh, So because it just required too much moving around in the studio and figuring things out. So she made the move in the 1990s to digital photography. And so if you now skip down to uh, still and not so still life, what you'll see is the more modern Olivia Parker. So, wow. And, and here's what's, here's what's really great. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to bring her to the attention of your listeners, because this is a woman who started making those early photographs. What in her thirties, maybe. And here she is in her seventies, sixties and seventies, still pursuing basic interests that had uh, appealed to her from the beginning, uh, looking at paintings and art historical references and historical references and playing with light and shadow and composition. But now using the technology of the time period. So, uh, and I just, I find it like a knockout, right? So she, she, if, you know, if you were to find a lot of photographers, you know, who produced their primary body of work that most people know them from early on in their lives, they might be content to just sit and rest on that laurel Mm. for the rest of their career. But here she is exploring completely different things. And you'll notice that one of the things that I've noticed about this work and, and, and spoken with her about is that as opposed to the early still life work, where we're not not provided any escape from the frame, these pictures often use what appear to be uh, spaces within the photograph. So we might look out a window in the extreme background. And she is now using electronic flash and other lighting equipment to balance out exterior and interior lighting so that... Uh, so that she's able to manipulate the picture space in new and different ways. And I find that to be just tremendously interesting that she's still interested in the same basic ideas, still playing with the idea of bringing art historical references into her work. Um, uh, And then, uh, and, and then expanding on that by, uh, challenging her own ideas about what the work could and should look like uh, over time. It, it's striking to me how 
some of the themes are obviously still very much in keeping with the very first things you you highlighted. Um, so on the still a not so still life uh, page at oliviaparker dot com, the what is it the, the the third image on the second row? We still have the still life in the foreground with the shadows in the background. I mean that is very reminiscent of the very first group of images we looked at. But now, like you say, the control of light here is amazing because obviously there's, you know, with flash or whatever, the foreground is very illuminated. The background is very dark. The level of detail is massive, but the embrace of color, like color is so important in this entire gallery here. And it's extremely accurate, yet vibrant color. Like it's, it doesn't feel super saturated in the sense that someone took the saturation slider and went nuts. It feels amplified really skillfully. And if if you were to you know bring up a second browser page and look at the color Polaroid work next to this more contemporary digital work, you'd see that she's exploring the same essential color palette. You know, colors that are extremely rich, mm. but not not punch you in the uh in the eye uh saturated so that's actually, um, that's a really good point that like the it, when i flick back extremely rich blues is what immediately strikes me in the in the older polaroid work um maybe it's because yep. i love blue also very rich reds to be honest uh but the blues really catch my eye because I, I just love blue um and in the newer work again, actually, yeah, a lot of blues and reds, blues and red and greens. It's the primary colors. It is, yeah. And that that Polaroid material was just unbelievably good at reds. It made these reds that just like they were so luscious, yummy. It's a good word for them, actually, luscious. Uh, yeah. yeah, like the radishes so, look pretty darn good in this newest gallery. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very radishy radishes. Uh, you know, so then like the, the last piece that I think is really, really interesting, um, you know, she's got, I don't know, what does she have here? 10, 10, 11, 12 galleries, uh, of, of images in, on her, on her site. But the, the, the last group of images is called Vanishing in Plain Sight. I was hoping you would, you would bring this up because... As we were setting up, this was the first one I happened to click on. And I happened to read the opening paragraph of the description before I scroll down. So I, I, I'll leave you to explain, but this is an amazing, amazing piece of a collection of work. Right. So, um, and I first started uh, seeing this work very early on when Olivia's husband, uh, John, had just begun a descent into Alzheimer's disease and was, you know, becoming both the man that she knew and loved and a man that she didn't understand anymore and who didn't understand or even recognize her. Hmm. And it was at this particular time that Olivia and I uh, reconnected and began to see each other at uh, the Society for Photographic Education conference. Uh, the Society for Photographic Education is a international organization but largely american based and uh i had the opportunity to invite olivia to 
to speak at uh, at one of these conferences. And then she continued to come again and again because she was meeting and seeing old friends. And uh, But at the very first time that she and I had seen each other, literally physically seen each other in, you know, 20 some years, she brought a little tiny booklet of these images and asked me, you know, to look at them and, and respond to them. And what she was beginning to photograph were the sort of ephemera that her husband would leave behind. He would make himself notes that mm. uh, reminded him of, you know, trying to trying to keep his memory intact while it was disappearing from him. Uh, and uh, she wanted to make some photographs that spoke of this experience. Um, and what I find really astonishing about this work is that it's so, so personal. Whereas, Shockingly you know, personal. Most um, of the work that I'd known of Olivia was something that was certainly very personal, but because it had a kind of poetic beginning to it it had a kind of universal understanding and yeah i would describe herself as it was unique it was instantly recognizable but not a look inside her soul in the same way that this is this is raw like and i i just i i'm knocked out by it not only because uh, and unfortunately i never met her husband john but I'd known, you know, of his existence yes. all the time that I've known Olivia. And, uh, you know, just to have her explore what this felt like. And for any of us who've encountered someone, and as I have had with, you know, various grandparents and my mother and so forth to, you know, decline in some way doesn't even matter whether it's alzheimer's decline or decline of general old age or or whatever but to explore what that looks like and to make those pictures not only look like what it looks like but also look like what it feels like Mm -hmm. uh i just i just think it's like a knock it out of the park kind of a thing um and it and it reminds me that photography can be as much about what it is that we see inside of ourselves as what it is that we see outside in the world. Um, yeah. I mean, and the, like these notes are concrete things, but yes, she uses that same technique. We've seen all the way through everything you just, you, you've brought, you've walked us through today, that technique of there being two layers, the crisp, sharp thing with something ephemeral projected onto it is now really taken home um, by, I presume, shining the light through some sort of liquid or something to give these waves of light. And the That's photograph... What, yeah, it does sort of look like a glass of water stuck in the, something like, in the yeah, sunlight. Something that has motion to it or something, yeah. The photograph that I just cannot scroll past, it, it nabbed me the, as I was scrolling, and I'm just, I've been stuck staring at it for the last two or three minutes. It's a note that's very crumpled, 
In red pen, it has just two letters. B. Yep. And the, the, the wavy light has a red, I don't know whether it was a gemstone stuck to the window or something. But the red of the ephemeral light being cast onto this very concrete note matches the red ink of those two letters. What an arresting image. And it's amazing how it's obvious that this is from the same photographer we started with. It is completely different and yet totally the same as where we came from. So it's, you know, and it's an indication that if if you develop a sense of of, of your own visual vocabulary, mm. uh, that visual vocabulary can be used to express a wide variety of of ideas and 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 things. So, um, you know, it's uh, it it's it's I it, yeah. The first time she showed me this work, I I I was really just uh, really struck by it because it was it it was as if she was like opening up a vein yeah. and setting it out in front of me. Um, and especially if anybody, you know, any of your listeners have been through this experience of watching someone grapple with dementia of some sort, um, this, this idea of sort of, you know, remembering snippets of things and the fact that her husband was really trying to cling to his memory by writing down, you know, the, one of the ones that always strikes me is, I don't remember where it is in this, in the sequence near the top, where it's pretty clear that he is writing about an, a, a, a travel experience that he had. Ritz, you know, Ritz Spain, Spain Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's trying to piece together a memory that he has that is imperfect. Uh, and, uh, past Gibraltar. It, it and it reminds me of, you know, photography as a as a mnemonic device. You know, mm. we we do use photography to do that. You know, I I'm sure everyone in the in the in your listening audience has a photograph of some loved one that they treasure perhaps above all other photographs, um, because it connects them with that person who is either gone by spatial or temporal distance um and and uh man the, like and and i just i love the idea that that you, you know if you've if you've thought to yourself as a photographer especially if you've been involved in it for some period of time if you've thought to yourself you know i already took that picture i've already been there i've already done that thing uh, the the answer to how to move forward is to look deeper inside yourself, um, yeah. because that's certainly what uh, what what she's doing here is you know looking inside of herself and and trying to come to grips with uh, the the loss uh, that she was experiencing um, as it as it happened. Um, and I, just, I don't even know how to just. It, it, if if those of you who are listening haven't looked at these, you have to look at them to kind of get uh, how profound they are. I mean, they really are are powerful in a way that you, you don't really expect. Um, yeah, I so, mean, all of the images you've taken us through today have been thought provoking, but this is one hell of a climax to to end the tour on. 
because this has taken all of her work to just another level that is really quite moving is is it's the only way I can describe it. Yep, yep. So uh Olivia Parker, um a great American photographer who is uh you know if if she's a name that is unfamiliar to uh listeners, um, you know, she's she's unfamiliar, but she's in major museum collections, uh, Art Institute of Chicago, Boston Museum of Fine Arts. She's been widely exhibited. She's had uh, a number of monographs published. And in fact... Um, well, her most recent the, book is very recent, 2019. Very recent. Yep, very recent. And it's, uh, it's phenomenal. Um, it's kind of a retrospective of all of the work that she has produced uh, in her in her career um and yeah. uh order of imagination order, order of imagination um and uh it's a it if if somebody was looking to to find a, a a place other than her website to you know if you're a book collector um which i have to admit that i am uh, it's it's a terrific book um i i wouldn't give up my uh my my copies of uh you know weighing the planets and under the looking glass and signs of life but um if you just wanted one this new book is really great so well the fact that it covers a large body of her of her work in one beautifully crafted book does give it a certain value i guess that unless you plan on spending a lot of money you can't get otherwise it's true this, it's true. this is this is wonderful so and it's it's a yeah it's 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 one of those books that's also you know i i just looked and it's it's fifty dollars u s dollars um uh I but it's uh, high quality extremely high quality and it's huge too it's uh i'm i'm putting my i don't have it with me uh, i'm putting my fingers out i'm gonna guess it's like two to three inches thick okay worth of uh worth of imagery so imagery and essays and um it's it's really a it's a pretty pretty big tour de force and it's a catalog of an exhibition that occurred um uh in in 2019 at the uh Peabody Essex Museum in in Massachusetts uh which unfortunately I didn't get to see but I've got the book yeah. so <laughs> yeah Jeff thank you very much for this this tour of Olivia Parker's work. Um, I ha- I didn't know this photographer until today, so I, I I didn't have to act. I didn't have to pretend to be introduced to this photographer. Um, I have thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this, um, and I'm hoping listeners have too. OliviaParker.com. There is a matching gallery for every bit of our discussion today. Um, yeah, th- thank you ever so much. This is this has been a wonderful my journey. pleasure. It's been fun. I mean, it was it was a fun exercise to whittle down a list of photographers who have influenced me. Uh, and, you know, it, it my, the, the, the fact that I, that I have had a, a sort of uh, adult lifelong relationship, friendship, uh, mentorship with Olivia has also, uh, also influenced my, my choice. And I, I think those are relationships in photography that we should celebrate and, uh, 
yeah. be excited about and seek out and uh, cultivate. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, thank you very much for putting in the the, the time and effort to, to I mean, it, you've obviously put a great deal of thought into this, so I really do appreciate it. Um, so thank you for that. My pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. You, thank uh, you for asking me to be here. That's my pleasure. I'm just delighted you said yes. Would you like to let the listeners know where they can see your own photography for a start? Because you actually do some, what I think is extremely cool, particularly your architectural photography, I always find very fascinating. Um, well, thank you. So, uh, yeah, my, give my the first link. You know, Jeff, jeffcurto.com, uh, com is, is uh, the main website and on that uh, site you'll find man a whole bunch of different things uh i uh, uh i have some a, a whole bunch of educational resources uh that are on uh, on that website as well as my photographic work as well as uh a link actually right on the main page is uh my current uh, instagram images so i'm pretty active on instagram and uh link to my uh, I, I do photography workshops in Italy, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully again, and yeah. cancel them, cancel them for this year, but uh, we've rescheduled for 2021, keeping our fingers crossed that we all get to travel and photograph uh, together again. I, I have to say, I love near future. Italy has been such an interesting muse for you, I get the impression. Um, your yes. work there has always been very enjoyable to look at. Well, thank you, thank you. And actually, uh, you know, I, I, my muse of late has been uh, the shores of uh, America's Lake Superior, where I've been sort of hunkered down, waiting out the pandemic. So um, I've been exploring uh, the natural world in a way that I never had a. Uh, I suppose I've had the chance to do it before, but I haven't really buckled down and explored. Uh, the landscape, the uh, the lake, lakescape, oceanscape, Lake Superior is big enough that it's uh, that it's almost an ocean. Um, yeah, I mean, you say lake, but I'm seeing lighthouses and uh, when yeah. you say winter, uh, you have winter <laughs> on Lake Superior, right? For those of us living in Europe, we don't know what winter is. Have a look at these photographs. No. This is winter. I'm almost yeah, we... cold looking at it. Although I have to uh, say, your your skyscape jumps out at me here with these amazing streaks of cloud and the the effect of the wide angle lens. It's an absolutely glorious photograph there, Eagle Harbor, oh, winter thank twenty fifteen. Yeah, we uh, we get uh, we get winter the way God intended it up Dude, here. Right? Yeah, this is not winter by half. Uh, this, yeah. this is full on uh, winter. Our our average snowfall is three hundred and twenty inches a year. Oh, okay. Uh, so. Uh, we uh it's it's uh <laughs> it's an interesting place to be in the winter um uh beautiful but uh, brutal uh, or it can be i can't imagine camera batteries enjoy that weather very much uh you just keep them in your pocket keep, your keep pocket. an extra keep a supply of them in your pocket uh you know down next to your nether regions and keep them close <laughs> yeah that's good advice keep them close <laughs> Uh, at least that's what I found works the best. Okay. So there we go. A bonus tip, folks: when it gets cold, keep yeah. your batteries warm. Okay. Um, <laughs> exactly. So 
Jeff, I will have a link to your site as well as a link to oliviaparker.com over in the show notes, which listeners will find at lets-talk.ie. And while the listeners are there, I would appreciate if they uh, clicked on one of the big blue buttons under the heading support the show. Um, There are two primary ways of supporting this show. The first is Patreon. This is a mechanism for pledging a small dollar amount for every podcast I publish. There will be exactly two every month, one Apple, one photography. So if you think my content is worth $2 a month, pledge one and it'll become two. If you think somehow magically that I'm worth a tenner a month, pledge five and it'll become ten. Um, Patreon is great because it's a regular monthly income and I have regular monthly bills and the aim of the exercise here is to make one match the other and to, I just want to break even with podcasting. It's not about making money. I, I do this for fun, but it does kind of need to break even. I am slightly in the process of buying a house and that's that's not the kind of thing that <laughs> you want to have large expenses floating around. Um, now, I'm happy to say actually, because a, a few months ago I mentioned on the podcast that due to 2020 being 2020, uh, listener support had dropped a bit and the podcast wasn't breaking even anymore. Well, it is breaking even again. So I just want to give an extra big thank you to all of the listeners who responded so kindly uh, to my pleading. Um, let's be honest, my pleading. Um, you guys rock. Um, and this show only exists because so many of you rock. Anyway, let's slash talk a dot IE. Thank you to everyone who has and continues to support the show. Jeff, thank you again. Um, and uh, I will say, actually, you're a, you're an American. You're in America. So while I don't imagine it will be a normal Thanksgiving next week, I do hope you manage to find a way to make 2020 Thanksgiving memorable and fulfilling in as best a way as it can be. It, uh, it will not be a normal Thanksgiving, but uh, we are happy to still be healthy and... Uh for a better future here in America without uh, getting political. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I will also not get political and yet echo your sentiment. <laughs> Jeff, all thank right. you. Thanks again, Bart. I appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. And to all of our listeners, until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. My gal pals, Elisa, Susie, and Vicky, the three geeky ladies, told me to remind you that they will release a new podcast each month. So, check them out at 3geekyladies.com or subscribe in iTunes. The Three Geeky Ladies, part of the MyMac Podcasting Network.